0: That is Irish step dancer and 2014 National Heritage Fellow, Kevin Doyle, with the band Pendragon. He is dancing a piece written especially for him called Kevin Doyle's Hornpipe. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced by the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Kevin Doyle was born and raised in Rhode Island with a tradition of step dancing that went back two generations on his mother's side. She was a great Irish step-dancer, and he was brought up in a house and a neighborhood filled with music and dance. Kevin danced competitively from an early age, winning several competitions, or fesh, throughout New England and the greater New York area. He soon added tap dancing to his repertoire, performing in regional theaters and winning national competitions. Like many traditional artists, he had to cut back on his dancing when he married and began having children, But he always kept a hand or a foot in it, and now he's back on the circuit, and he's never been busier, dancing with any number of groups and bands, playing percussive instruments with the band Pendragon, serving as a state and regional master artist, receiving a fellowship from the Rhode Island Council on the Arts, and now he's named a 2014 National Heritage Fellow. We saw him dance last year when 2013 fellow Seamus Connolly invited Kevin to perform with him at the National Heritage Fellowship Concert. Seeing Kevin's performance made me realize that step dance is part of Irish music itself, often serving as percussion for the music. When I spoke with Kevin Doyle a couple of weeks back, I shared that observation with him.
1: Yes, I totally agree with that because to me, Irish music is dance music. And, you know, besides the beautiful songs and the airs that they play, but any kind of the traditional jigs, reels, and hornpipes, it's dance music. So it's sort of like a natural reaction for people to hear the music, and all of a sudden their foot starts to tap and and, uh, their hands start clapping a little bit. And so when they see it danced out rhythmically with uh, the feet as percussion, it sort of like completes the whole picture to them. It all totally makes sense then.
0: Well, where did you learn to step dance?
1: Well, I first started learning Marv at the age of eight years old from my mother, who came from Castlereagh, County Roscommon, in Ireland in the 1930s. And she was a, a wonderful step dancer that she had learned from her mother, and she brought her folk art to this country. So it was sort of like a natural thing for me after seeing my mom dance at so many occasions and, and parties. And it was something that I wanted to do as well as part of our community and part of our heritage.
0: And you danced with your sister, Maureen, correct?
1: Yes, Maureen was six years old, and um, she was my dance partner for, oh, 40 years and still performs with me. In fact, she'll be coming down to Washington, D.C. with me as well to to show some of the dances that we did earlier on in our uh, career.
0: What would happen? Would your mother teach you how to dance after school? Was it, you know, you came home and you did dance at home?
1: Yes, yeah, we would have to do homework and then we would do a little bit of rehearsing of the steps that we had learned. And my mom would keep uh, them fresh in our minds. So her way of doing that was every morning before we went off to school with St. Matthew's School with our uniforms on. Maureen and I would be in front of the kitchen sink and my mom would be lilting uh, McLeod's reel for us. Lilting was a form of mouth music that they used oftentimes in Ireland when there was no instruments in the house or no musicians. And she would load um, McLeod's reel, which is something like, debuted- And we would do the beginning steps of the reels, the sevens and the threes. And then off we'd go. She'd send us off to school, and uh, oftentimes she'd give me a shot of this uh stuff to think that maybe I would have a growth spurt on the way, but uh, the dancing worked out a lot better than that.
0: Was dancing something you took to immediately? And I don't mean just in terms of talent, but I mean in terms of love. Did you love it right away?
1: I did. I really loved it right away. I, I think it was my sense of rhythm that I just felt a natural draw to that, to the music, and I could fit my steps to the timing. A lot of dancers sometimes struggle with the timing with the musicians and the different music that's played And I always had a gift of being able to accent the rhythms with my feet. So it was oftentimes it was said to me that you really dance right to the music. And so I had a rhythm in me that just seemed to fit with my feet. And whatever I was listening to, I could just impersonate that percussion with my feet.
0: Now, when did you begin more formal lessons outside the home?
1: Oh, that was probably at the age of nine. After my mom had taught us uh, quite a few of her steps, she wanted uh, us to get into a more disciplined setting of dancing. And uh, we went out to Mrs. McCrory's School of Dance in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. She had a very nice battering form of dancing, which is a style of dancing that's very rhythmic, close to the ground. And she had some wonderful steps that we were attracted to. We had seen her dances performing out around St. Patrick's Day. And we went out there, and that led us into the competition scene.
0: The competitions were really important in that time, wasn't it? I mean, that was a time when you really could go out there and perform, especially as a kid.
1: Yes. It was a little different from today. Today, the world, the Nationals, there's an awful lot of pressure and uh, an awful lot of preparation. Not that there wasn't a lot of preparation for us. But it was something to see if you could go to these feshes that were up and down the northeast in Boston and Brookline and the Bronx, the Yonkers, all up and down New York. It was to see how well you could do. You would compete. It would be an all-day event. And, of course, you'd have an Irish dance uniform on that they sent over from Castle Ray that was uh, made of the finest wool of Ireland and be about 90-some degrees all day long in the fesh. So you'd be over there sweating all day, waiting to compete. And it was something to be able to go do that. If you were victorious in the fesh, you know, it was quite an honor to uh, have
0: that. I know that you did an old style form of step dancing, but I want you to explain what those different styles are. There are reels, there are jigs, there are hornpipes and enormous variations within each of those categories. But just generally, what are the differences among those three?
1: Well, What's different about each piece is the timing. The jigs are always in the uh, the six eighth rhythm. Reels would be 4-4 four, four times, which is a pretty fast 4-4 four, four time. And hornpipes would be 4-4, four, four, but they'd be very, very... Uh, cho- the steps would be choreographed very much to the music. So you would hear the hornpipe stepped uh, right along with the music, and it would almost dictate what you would be dancing. Jigs being very quick and lively. And reels, of course, they were done with uh, soft shoes and hard shoes. They're all unique in their own way. But what my old style is about is the very old, traditional, close-to-the-ground rhythms where you do a lot of work very close to the ground. And as with the dance masters of the old days, it wasn't common to show the sole of your feet. You would actually get mocked off in competitions for that back in Ireland. (laughs)
0: Interesting, I think, for many people, when we think of Irish dancing, of course, we think about river dance and the kind of show dancing that's done there. But as you say, what you do is quite different from that.
1: Yes, it is. Michael Flatley, who I I give all the credit in the world to for bringing the spotlight back on Irish step dancing and putting it on the world stage, He's really uh, moved that dancing and the evolution of dance that incorporated Spanish dancing, flamingo dancing, tap dancing, just a loose form and a very exciting form of step dance. And he still sticks to some of the traditional roots of it, but he's taken it much further than that.
0: Now, in, in traditional Irish step dancing, the right foot and the left foot kind of have a mirrored relationship in terms of the way they do steps. Is that true?
1: Yes, and the, uh, the step dancing, the traditional step dancing, it was always done with the right foot and usually repeated with the left. And it's actually a choreographed form of dance versus the Cheneaux style of dance, which was a very early form of dance in Ireland, where it was you would never re- repeat the same step twice. It was pretty much what you felt to the music, what you were listening to. You'd jump up and you would just do something that fit rhythmically to the tune. And next time you got up, you'd never do the same thing twice. Where step dance, was choreographed.
0: Now the chanose style is one of the oldest forms of Irish dancing, isn't it?
1: Yes, that's chanose and and it's a very old style of dance, very popular in the Connemara area of Ireland and actually is enjoying quite a renewal uh, throughout Ireland and uh, throughout the country and the world right now. It's getting to be very popular again. That was very much part of the uh, kitchen hoolies and uh, the parlor rackets. And it would always be said in the old days over there. And as in this country as well, like when the musicians were playing, someone would say to you, come on, don't let that good music go to waste. Someone get up and do a step to it. And so someone would jump up and as long as it fit into the structure of the tune, whatever you did was fine.
0: So it's like jazz for Irish dancing.
1: Yes, very much so.
0: Kevin, you also are a tap dancer. How did you get involved with tap?
1: Well, tap dancing became an instant desire of mine after I seen the movie Yankee Doodle Dandy, which was a story of George M. Cohan. James Cagney portrayed George M. Cohan. And I saw that movie and I was so infatuated with the dancing of James Cagney and the storyline. That I ran out into the kitchen and I said, "Mom, I said I want to learn how to do that dancing as well." And I continue with my Irish step dancing, of course. But my mom took me out to Teresa Landry's School of Dance in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, and I started there at the age of ten years old, and continue to see her and work with her today. And she's ninety, gonna be ninety-three years old, and she'll be in Washington with me as well in September. <laughs>
0: relationship between tap and step dancing isn't there. Oh, absolutely. It was part
1: of the evolution of dance when a lot of the Irish step dancers came over to America to to diversify their talent. They started in vaudeville, all the different shows that were going to be on Broadway. Everybody had to sort of like diversify and they all became hoofers and brought tap into their repertoire.
0: Did you find that your step dancing affected the way you tapped and when you were tapping, did that affect the way you then subsequently step danced?
1: No, that transition was very easy for me. The transition from the rigid form of step dance into the really bent knees, loose body form, or expressive form of tap dance was easy for me. And I never really had a problem going back and forth. Although I will say with some of my jig steps or my, some of my hot shoe reel steps, I will incorporate into uh, some tap routines that I've choreographed. So it's very easy to mesh the two styles together, but I didn't have a problem keeping that line there to keep it traditional and then keep tap with with tap.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think with step dancing, often if you were dancing publicly, it was in a competition, whereas with tap you were performing more than competing. Is that fair?
1: Yes, for the most part. I would say that with Irish step dancing, there was a lot of competing, However, there was a lot of uh, performance as well. But the difference was with the Irish step dancing, they only wanted to really see you around St. Patrick's Day. So all the Irish clubs, five, six, seven places a night, we would go around to the different organizations. And my sister and I would do the step dances. And they'd say, thank you very much. That was wonderful. Uh, We'll see you next year. So I did a lot of my entertaining with tap dance and a lot of my competitions became tap dance as well, with different shows like community auditions. And uh, one of the shows in New York City was the Ted Mack Amateur Hour, which was like an early form of America's Got Talent. So I was actually very successful with that, winning two times on that show. And that was voted by uh, America. People voted it and sent in cards, and the American public chose the winners. So there was some competition to that, but you're right, most of that was all part of uh, school shows, uh, performances on the Steel Pier in Atlantic City. It was pretty much a lot of performance, but there was some element of competition in there.
0: I also would imagine as you got older and had a family and a full-time job that you kind of had to step away from step dancing and tap dancing. I
1: did have to um, back away a little bit from that because I really couldn't take the opportunities that were coming my way because I did have three children and a wife and a mortgage. Like many folk artists, you have to supplement your income. So it was something that I always kept my passion alive for, and I would keep performing. I would constantly be choreographing and creating steps and working with other artists, but it was tough to try to uh, keep that balance sometimes when you had a full-time job. It's it's just been wonderful for me now. I've been retired a year, a year ago, June, and uh, opportunities have been coming my way, and I actually have the time to actually explore what I'd like to do with my passion for dance. It's been great now.
0: Well, you also had something that was actually kind of devastating turn into an enormous opportunity. What was devastating was that the grocery store that you managed closed, but you got another job that, oddly enough, gave you much more time to be able to dance.
1: Yes. I, and I, I didn't realize that till about 10 years after I had the job. I, what happened was in 95, I lost my job after 28 years with a, a, a supermarket chain, and I had done very well with them. And at 45 years old, I was out of work with three children and a mortgage and uh, needed coverage. So I started driving for the Rhode Island Public Transit as a bus driver in the city of Providence, and I did that for 17 years. The markets, they never would allow your time off because I was responsible for perishable inventories. I had to be there for the ordering. So it would very, very, very difficult for me to uh, get some time to, to explore festivals or, or to take off to a week-long camp anywhere. However, with Ripta, they had a, a situation there where I could have other drivers actually work a day for me, and I could string days together and put a week worth of days together or longer if I needed to, and so I was allowed to explore a lot more opportunities, and um, it, that happened in June of 96, which was simultaneously when Riverdance was hitting the world stage and uh, there was a rejuvenation of uh, in Irish step dance, so... I'm a very firm believer in when one door closes, another door opens. And little did I know at the time, after feeling devastated, that that was actually going to enable me to uh, groom a career so when I retired, I could still continue to follow my passion.
0: I think sometimes it's difficult to remember, since it's almost 20 years, the impact that Riverdance had on Irish dancing.
1: Oh, it's, it's been incredible and still is incredible as far as how it's crossed over into so many different backgrounds. I've worked with some great dancers, and some of the best have been Asian dancers. And last year in County Clare and in Ireland, there was eight Japanese dancers in my class, and they were one was a lawyer, one was a doctor, and they just infatuated with the form of dance. And that goes right across the board with all these sorts of nationalities. How just rejuvenated so much interest in the dance. And at that time, I got to say that Pendragon, the band who I've been with for uh, 18, 19 years actually now, I had known them earlier on in my life, and they said everybody wants to see the step dance and would you like to come out and try step dancing with us again? So I did, and uh, I've been with them since 96 of June and um, been dancing ever since with them. I also dance with Atwater and Donnelly band as well, a husband and wife duo, so when people ask me, what do you think about Michael Flatley and Riverdance, I really thank him so much for putting the spotlight back on dance and actually took me out of semi-retirement.
0: Well, let's talk about Pendragon just for a moment. You do hard shoe dancing with them with syncopated beats, fast music. Is that typically what you do when you're dancing with them?
1: Yes. I play percussion with them. I play hand percussion with uh, African djembes and uh, Middle Eastern doombecks and boron, uh, the Irish drum. Then I step out in front of the kit and I uh, do the jigs, reels, and hornpipes, which once again completes the picture when you're hearing these lively sets of jigs and reels. I step out and I let my feet do the percussion for the rest of the tune.
0: Now, how did you become the percussionist, not with your feet, but with your hands, for Pendragon?
1: Well, I always played around with percussion all my life. I loved percussion. It was sort of like a natural thing. I had so much rhythm in my feet. My hands were full of it as well. And there was a drummer in Pendragon, Ron Smith, who was a wonderful drummer, but had decided to move on and go into a different direction. And Pendragon folks called me up and said, Kevin, we think we have the right guy for the next drummer for Pendragon. And I said, oh, that's great. And, um... They said, yeah, he's from Barrington, Rhode Island. I said, oh, that's coincidental. That's where I'm from, and his name's Kevin. And I said, wait a minute. And they said, yeah, yeah, uh, buddy, you're going to be the next percussionist. So we looked around for a really warm-sounding djembe and some nice hand percussion drums, and I just moved that rhythm from my feet up to my hands, and uh, it's been fun ever since.
0: Also dance with the Atlantic steps tell me about that ensemble
1: well that's a, a group of six dancers. Brian Cunningham from Connemara Island had had traveled in Ireland with his siblings five siblings the Cunningham family and they had this wonderful show over there in Ireland and Brian moved to this country and he wanted it to follow his dream and bring that show alive over here in the United States and it's like a story, a 90-minute story of uh, what happened to the Irish dance when it came across the Atlantic. I always think about that show as when once the train leaves the station, that show goes for 90 minutes and it's nonstop dance and stories and voiceovers and uh, it's very exciting.
0: Do you do any improvised dance with the Atlantic steps?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a couple of sections in the show that's called the step about and each, each one of us step forward and we do 32 bars of music. You're listening to the music and you're uh, impersonating the music with your feet. So everybody gets to change it up each time they do it. And uh, it's never done the same. There's no choreographing the Chanel steps, even though there are routines in there. There are jigs, there's reels, there's hornpipes, and those are choreographed. But there's an awful lot of improvised dancing.
0: You also have students who you teach Irish dance to. When did you start teaching?
1: I started teaching at the age of 19, maybe 20 years old. I started teaching uh, using Teresa Landry's studio and also using my basement as well. And I was teaching workshops and teaching different routines to people that would come to me and ask me when they see me outperforming, if I would give lessons. So I continue to teach in schools. Many schools today, I I do programs with Atwater and Donnelly. And the the hunger for the Irish dance and the love of the music is just so evident when you expose these children to it, that it's one of the, the best parts about my passion is to share it and to share it with children.
0: And you find that kids really respond to it. They're not dragged there by their parents.
1: Oh, No. No. It's sort of like that dynamic style of dance that captured all the audiences in Riverdance. When you see a dance really right up close like that, I mean, some of these children never get up close to see that, up close to see the instruments, up close to see the dance. And many times we'll go back to school as resident artists and we'll return the following Monday and the teachers will say, these kids have not stopped dancing and hopping and skipping since you left last week. And they're really, really anxious and eager and focused to learn. So we get a lot done in, in uh, a day programs at these schools and give them a good taste of the dance and the song and the music. And who knows if only one person picks up a pair of dance shoes or an instrument, you know, it could maybe save their life someday.
0: You also choreographed, and you were the lead dancer in the annual A Christmas Celtic Sojourn. Now, tell me about that. How did that come about?
1: Well, that was a great opportunity that Brian O'Donovan from WGBH, Brian called me up and gave me the opportunity, which I thoroughly enjoyed, putting all the dance pieces together and working with these wonderful children from the Honey School of Dance in Walpole. It was just a great experience, and Got to have a great run of uh, all these shows that we do. They do like 11 or 12 shows around Christmas time, and it's well attended, and it's just a fantastic experience.
0: I read, and I find this really, really hard to believe, that you had four to five days to put this whole thing together.
1: Well, that is most often the case, I would say, in all of the shows that I've been involved in, and I always refer to it as the Christmas Miracle which Brian gets a kick out of that, but uh, he, he knows what I'm saying because we meet on a Monday morning and we meet in this wonderful rehearsal space and we meet with Seamus Egan of the band Solus is the uh, music director, and we meet all these musicians from all over the world, very talented people, and we start choreographing the show on a Monday, maybe late Monday morning, and usually by Thursday... We've already got our costumes and we're ready to do a run-through and we're out there on Friday. And it's just amazing how the process is like, it starts off very slow and everything comes together and it's like, can't believe it. It's like Wednesday morning, you're thinking, is this ever going to happen? But it happens. We bring in all the dancers on uh, Wednesday and we bring them back on Thursday morning and we choreograph all the pieces into the music and uh, the show goes off and it gets better with each show, but it gets done. It's amazing.
0: You know, it's it's also really interesting because there are a lot of kids in the show and they're probably used to the competition, so this must be so different for them just to be able to perform.
1: Absolutely. That was something that was said to me when I first worked with them was some of the parents said to me the the hardest job you're gonna have with the children is to get them to smile because they're so used to having judges sitting across on them at a the table and it's all about the competition with so many students and uh that I had to just keep telling them that even though you can't see the second and the third balcony in these theaters, it's a total darkness. You're going to hear the applause, and I want you to look up, and as you're dancing off the stage, wave to the people up there because they really love what you do. They really love your folk art. They love your step dancing, and they really appreciate how much work you've put into it. So that was something, a unique experience for these children that they really hadn't had a taste of before. And hopefully, I know they'll never forget it. It's an experience of a lifetime for any young dancer to just feel the, the applause and the energy and the excitement that the audience gives right back to you.
0: Well, as you mentioned, you decided to retire early and devote yourself full-time to dancing, which seems to be working out pretty pretty well for you.
1: Yes, I I would... Highly recommend it. (laughs) I was told by the woman at Social Security when I went down and sat with her and um, she said, you know, I sit here every day and I listen to people's stories. And she said, I got to tell you, if the numbers work for you, and they did because my wife Donna and I, um, we don't really live extravagantly, but she said, if there's something you want to do that you have a passion for, she said, go for it. She goes, because so many people wait too long So she really encouraged me to say, go for it. And so I went for it, and um, opportunities have knocked, and who knew I'd be going to Washington, D.C. to get the NEA Fellow Award. I'm just so amazed, and um, it's just uh, a wonderful, wonderful feeling. I really think (laughs) it's going to be a while before it sinks into my head, you know. It's it's just great.
0: How did you find out? I'm assuming Barry Burgey called you.
1: Yeah, that was pretty uh, unique, what happened with Barry Burgey. Barry Bergey called me one day when I was down in Point Judith, Rhode Island, uh, South County, on a beautiful oceanfront down there with my 92-year-old dance teacher. And I looked at my phone, and it said, Washington, D.C. I said, oh, Teresa, I have to get this call. So I went outside, and Barry was on the other end of the line, and he said, hey, Kevin, he goes, how you doing? He goes, how'd you like your picture on that 2014 National Endowment guide this year. I said, oh, my goodness. I said, i so grateful that that happened. I said, I got work out of it, a lot of emails, a lot of inquiries. And he said to me, he goes, he goes, well, buddy, he goes, this year, you're coming back to Washington, but it's all about you this year. And I was dead silent on the other end of the phone. And he's like, hello, hello. I said, yes, I'm here, Barry. I said, uh, I'm, uh, I just can't believe what's going on right now. I said, I'm down in Point judith with my 92 year old dance teacher i said it's just her and i and i'm getting a phone call like this and i went inside and i sat Teresa down i said theresa i said stay healthy i said please i said you're going to washington in september and i told her about the award and she started crying her eyes out and of course it was very emotional
0: what a moment that must have been
1: yes it was
0: Kevin, again, congratulations. I am looking forward to your performance in Washington. And this time, Seamus Connolly is accompanying you.
1: Yes, Seamus is uh, the first gentleman I called up to uh, be part of my band to go down to Washington, D.C., because he was so uh, gracious to have me come down and have that experience last year. I think we're going to have a party in D.C. and looking very much forward to it.
0: As am I. Kevin, congratulations once again, and I'll see you soon. Thank you.
1: Yeah, it's coming right up. We are so excited. Thank you very much.
0: That is Irish step dancer and 2014 National Heritage Fellow, Kevin Doyle. The National Heritage Fellowship concert will be held at the Lisner Auditorium on February 19th at 8 p.m. If you're in the D.C. area, come and join us. And even if you're not in D.C., you can still join the celebration. We're webcasting the concert live from the Lisner Auditorium. Just go to arts.gov for details. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Next week, dancer and founder of Dance Place, Carla Perlow. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.